In this week's episode of The Nerd Byword, we turn our attention to a Marvel movie that requires some repair functions, 2012's The Amazing Spider-Man. So grab your web shooters and probably an extra cartridge or two. You're going to need it because the byword begins now. Hey there, true believers. On last week's show, we decided to fix Man of Steel. But as we all know, even the mighty Marvel machine is not immune to releasing some stinkers as well. So here we are to tweak 2012's The Amazing Spider-Man, starring Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone. But first, we don't want to incur any additional plot holes. So let's hit the hyperdrive over to... Dave, who are you talking about today? Ah, I see what you did there. Dad yeah, jokes. Talk- <laughs> yeah, hey, hey, you got to do it, right? Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about Doctor Who for a second, which has been in a um, a, a very interesting position over the last few years. Um, so uh, after the departure of showrunner Stephen Moffat, we got uh, Chris Kibnell, who uh, you know has penned some really good Doctor Who episodes in the past, and also the very first female incarnation of the Doctor character in Jodie Whittaker. And yet the entire series, despite, you know, this fantastic pedigree, has really received a lot of mixed reception and emotions from fans. Uh, most people cite Whittaker's performance as really a highlight and, and there not being a horrible big problem with her, except for, you know, the occasional, you know, sexist who can't handle the Doctor being female for once. Um, the, the real problem that a lot of fans seem to be having is with the writing and particularly uh, Kibnall's work uh, as showrunner. And so it is not surprising that after three seasons and a couple of specials, uh, both Kibnall and Whitaker will be departing, uh, which means, of course, it's time for a new showrunner in 2023 and, of course, a new incarnation of the Doctor as well. Um the fandom kind of got a shock to their system, though, when they found out that Russell T. Davies will be returning to the role of showrunner. Now, of course, Davies is the guy who revived Doctor Who back in 2005 after the show had been off the air since the 80s and uh, basically um, sort of uh, presided over the tenures of uh, Chris Eccleston um, and David Tennant before handing the reins off to Stephen Moffat. And so it's kind of like a blast from the past. And there is excitement in the fandom, I would say, in some respects, because Davies was responsible for a very, very popular era in Doctor Who, uh, very specifically the, da- uh, the David Tennant era, which is incredibly popular. At the same time, though, Davies has some um, idiosyncrasies himself that uh, are kind of distinctive. Uh, you know, his attempts at humor, for example, within the show framework don't always land. Um, and so here, you know, it's just very odd to see the BBC decide to go back Uh, to the guy who revived the show in 2005 rather than moving forward and taking a chance on a new showrunner again. It's arguable in a lot of ways that as far as modern Doctor Who goes, 
you know, Stephen Moffat's tenure was probably the most successful and most popular. So taking a chance on a new showrunner is obviously not a bad thing. Now, you know, the situation with Kibnell apparently backfired a little bit, uh, but that doesn't mean that can't be course corrected. So going back to Davy seems very um, odd and surprising. Uh, I'm very excited to see what he might bring to the table after years away from Doctor Who. But at the same time, it seems... Just a little surprising to me that they don't want to take a chance on a new showrunner again. What do you think, Chris? So, again, um, complete outsider's perspective. My experience with Doctor Who is limited. I think I've viewed the first five or six episodes of um, the first Eccleston season, which I thoroughly enjoy. I'm just, you know, I have so much content that I'm going for, but um, I'm playing significant amount of catch up. Um so this is just really interesting to me because even in my limited knowledge, that name popped across my timeline and I immediately recognized it. So yeah, it is definitely interesting to go to go backwards rather than forwards in in any respect. But um, maybe this is a, a temporary type situation where they, after this disappointing uh, you know showrunner situation, they they want to kind of like a, a like a stopgap, if you will, and kind of an, inject some some solid content and then before handing it off to someone else. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's it. Although, you know, from the interviews and the statements made so far, it seems like this is going to be a for the foreseeable future situation. And it's announced way in advance. I mean, we're looking at, you know, 2023 when he actually takes over. And of course, there will be, you know, the big casting stuff going on and all the rumors of who will be playing, you know, the next incarnation of the Doctor you know, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. Um, You know, the other thing that's really interesting here is that that Davies is kind of known for a specific kind of doctor. Um, There are parallels in in Eccleston's and Tennant's doctors, even though the performances are different. uh, Some of the character traits are similar. And as far as like the current doctor, a a lot of people feel like Jodie Whittaker has based her performance largely on uh, Tennant's uh, they were their friends as well from you know before Doctor Who. So uh, if if Davy sort of brings his stock um, understanding of Doctor Who to the table, then this is not going to be um, a reinvention uh, of the wheel or really much of a reinvention at all when the Doctor regenerates. Because you know if he's bringing basically sort of a David Tennant style Doctor back to the table, well, in a lot of ways we've had that in Jodie Whittaker. So you know it's it's not exactly the change I think that a lot of fans are looking for, I guess, Chris. Yeah, that, that is a little bit, uh, a little bit, uh, I guess, questionable. And, and, you know, again, from my extremely limited, you know, um, knowledge of the situation, that does seem a little bit questionable. All right. Well, Chris, you are taking us to court. What did we do wrong <laughs> this time? Well, uh, Marvel and Disney are reportedly headed back to court. It's not us. We're we're in the clear. We're just reporting. Oh, good. I was worried. <laughs> yeah, so Disney and Marvel are headed back to court, reportedly, uh, according to The Hollywood Reporter. Um, in August of this year, the administrator of Steve Ditko's uh, estate filed a notice of copyright termination on the character of Spider-Man. Ditko, of course, co-created the character with legendary writer Stan Lee. With, uh, with Spidey debuting in Amazing Fantasy 15 in August of 62. If successful, Marvel would be forced to give up Ditko's rights to the character in June of 2023. Something's happening with 2023 here, apparently. There's a trend. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, Disney slash Marvel has now filed a suit that seeks declaratory relief that Spider-Man and a multitude of other popular characters, including Iron Man, Black Widow, Falcon, Thor, and Doctor Strange, are not eligible for copyright termination as they were created as a product of work for hire. The complaints filed by Marvel are against the estates of Lee, Ditko, and Gene Colan. They are also facing a similar termination notice from creator Larry Lieber, brother of Stan Lee, and have filed similar suits against him and other creators. The attorneys presiding over both sides were the same parties that were involved in a similar claim by the estates of Superman co-creators Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster in their unsuccessful attempt to terminate the rights of DC over their character. Uh, Mark Toblerov, the attorney representing the creator's estates, also represented the estate of Jack Kirby, which, though unsuccessful, did reach all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court in 2013. While Twitter and social media at large were entirely engulfed in the fallout of this news, with speculation raging from down with the evil mouse overlord to, oh my god, we'll never see these characters again, it should be noted that, according to the Hollywood Reporter article, even if Marvel should lose these suits, they would be forced to share ownership and profits with the estates of these creators. While I, unlike the majority of the internet, did not receive an instant certification in copyright law, my gut intuitive reaction is that Marvel will probably reach some sort of settlement if things get really spicy, something similar to what DC has done with the estates of Siegel and Schuster. Nevertheless, my sincere hope is that creators will obviously be adequately compensated for their creations moving forward. What say you, Dave? <sighs> That's what I say. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm not really a legal expert in any way, shape, or form. Um, of course, I have some feelings when it comes to copyright and 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 you know, um, rights of survivorship and all that stuff. I think, not talking now specifically about this case, but but much more generally speaking, I think we have created a pretty significant problem in this country. Um, in large part, I think, um, sort of perpetuated by the Walt Disney Company. And that is that we continuously extend the length for which a copyright can be held. Um, you know, originally copyrights were fairly limited. Um, you know, we're talking, you know, death of creator plus a few years. But very specifically, from my understanding, because the Walt Disney Company seems to be unwilling to surrender um Mickey Mouse and let him pass into the public domain. They have a very large lobbying arm that continuously lobbies Congress to extend uh, uh, copyrights. Now, you know, that, that causes, a, you know, a number of issues. For one, um, you have these large corporations who are, um, rather than, you know, trying to bring in new artists and new writers to, to create new characters, you know, once these uh, current hits are pop, you know passing into the public domain uh, they're just perpetuating um you know sort of a, a cultural freeze frame i mean we're still dealing in large part you know in the comic book industry at least for the big publishers with characters that were either created in the 30s or in the 60s and although some new stuff has been added to that i would say you know, most of that is probably derivative works um in other words, we're stagnating in a lot of ways because of this continuous copyright extension. Uh, the other problem I think that we're having is 
you know, this this whole notion uh, of the estates of the children and grandchildren of creators coming after these corporations for their piece of the pie, which wouldn't be really much of an issue if these characters would pass from copyrighted materials into the public domain as originally designed under original copyright law. There is something, you know, on the one hand, you know, you want creators to be treated fairly, you want, you know, creators to be paid fairly, compensated fairly, all that. But at the same time, there's there's something a little icky about somebody's children or grandchildren coming uh, and then holding out their hand and saying, well, my, my grandfather did this great thing and now you should pay me for it. Like, well, what, what the heck did you do? You know, there is, there is a fine line between trying to right a past wrong and having some people who have nothing to do with the creation of these characters looking for a quick payday from a big corporation. So I think the real problem that we're facing here on all fronts is just copyright law in general and the fact that a company like the Disney company, which is so big and has so much money, can basically, um, I don't want to say bribe, but, you know, grease the wheels of government in such a way that copyrights continuously get extended and they, they do not lose the rights to these characters. And here we are basically in cultural stagnation, you know. It, it's it's a shame on, on a whole number of fronts. So I'm very, very ambivalent about lawsuits like this that don't actually involve, you know, the actual uh, creators. Now, when, when we're looking at like a situation with, uh, with Jared Lujan, for example, that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, that's a whole different bag, you know, for me, because we're talking about the actual creator feeling like, you know, he's been wronged. And, and yes, there should be correction. There should be redress of grievances. But when the grandkids start popping up and like, you know, <laughs> I, I want a slice of the pie, it, it's getting a little silly. And really, it needs to be fixed on a congressional level. We need to figure out how copyright is supposed to work properly and stop extending it into perpetuity. Right. Yeah, that's exactly... Um more or less my feelings. And it's funny that you say that because I immediately thought of our talk with Jared um, from a couple of weeks ago. So um, again, if you are an aspiring creator, please follow Jared's advice and, and speak to an attorney when you're getting ready to sign any kind of contract. You know, I immediately also thought of, you know, uh, individuals like Ed Brubaker who gets a $5,000 check and, and uh, a blink and you'll miss it thank you credit at the end of, you know, the winter soldier with his, you know, creation. So, um, and, and as far as, yeah, this also felt like another kind of, Oh, what are those movies? Like the whodunit thing where like, they're all sitting around reading the will and, you know, people are, are angry that they didn't get this or that in the will. So yeah. Um, it's just funny to see how quickly, um, you know, social media and, and the gen pop deludes into, oh, God, the world is ending. We'll never see these characters again. Or, you know, anarchy. I don't even know what it means, but I love it to borrow a, a phrase from Talladega Nights. So, um, but yeah, I, like I said, my gut reaction is they're going to they're going to reach a settlement just like they did with Siegel and Schuster. And everybody is just going to keep cash and checks and, you know, the clock rolls on. Yeah, this is this lawsuit. I mean, if we're completely honest about it, most lawsuits like them are not ultimately about creators' rights or trying to right. trying to right a past wrong. It's about somebody looking for a paycheck. That's yep. what it comes down to, really. Yep. All right, that wraps up our nerd news segment. When we come back from this, our first break, we're going to try and fix the Amazing Spider-Man, the movie. 
All right, we are back for this week's And I figured we would keep it um, even. Last week we fixed a DC movie, and I don't want to get too one-sided. So I told Dave, I was like, you know what? There are some Marvel movies that need a little TLC as well. So this week we are looking at 2012's The Amazing Spider-Man, starring Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone. And as always, our custom, we have three big fixes. We didn't hit the lightning round this time, although we could have, I think. Um... So we each got our three big fixes. Uh, Dave, what is first up for you? Well, first up, before I talk about any fixes, Chris, I just want to thank you for not making me fix any X-Men movies because <laughs> I don't think our listeners are ready for the Nerd by Word, the miniseries. 12 episodes oh, to fix one movie. The um, There's, oh, yeah, let's let's just not. Let's just not. <laughs> no, <laughs> no comment at this time. Yeah, may, may, maybe at a much later time. <laughs> All right. Well, so I want to first of all confess to to kind of liking this movie, uh, despite all its warts and faults and issues. There's a lot to love here, uh, particularly in the chemistry of some of the actors and the performances. There, there is good stuff here. Um, the directing is not necessarily bad either, but once again, like much with Man of Steel, I think a lot of it just comes down to the writing. Um, so my first problem really is with the villain of our piece, and and that's the lizard. I'm actually a pretty big Lizard fan through most of um, uh, his incarnations. I will freely admit I'm I'm a child of the 90s, so I did experience the Lizard actually first through the uh, animated series yes. at the time. And uh, that portrayal um, rings still very true to me. So to me, the Lizard is a very... Um, a sympathetic character, a sympathetic villain. He, you know, is has lost a limb. He's he's trying to figure out how to regrow it. He feels like a broken man. He wants to be there for his family. He has a wife. He has a child. You know, they're his focal point. They're his world. He's not in control when he becomes the lizard. That the the lizard sort of takes over and reverting him back from his lizard form. You know, returns him to this this very you know humble good man a good scientist, a family man who is also a staunch ally of Peter Parker's. And so that is, I think, why this lizard kind of falls flat for me. A lot of the goodness of the Kurt Connors character seems to be sort of brushed aside for a almost stereotypical mad scientist portrayal. In some ways, he even feels like a a, a riff off of... Uh, William Defoe's Green Goblin, you know, the mad scientist who's exper- experimenting on himself and then turns into a a green-colored villain. Um, it's just, it doesn't quite click here. And I think it's because in a lot of ways, as funny as this sounds, they didn't actually lean into the humanity of the lizard. And so what we end up with is um, a very stereotypical performance, a very, you know, mustache-twirling mad scientist. The warmth of the character is almost non-existent. The family dynamic is not nearly enough explored. You know, the idea even of like, you know, his like in the in the animated series, you know, and it's always sad when you have to go to an animated series to find, you know, <laughs> real human emotion. But uh, when, it, you know, the wife even goes to Spider-Man, it's like, please save him, please don't hurt him, just bring him back to us, you know, that, that kind of stuff. That's big, big emotional stuff. That stuff plays great 
in the big screen. And and so here, what we have instead is a very bleh lizard. And, and you've got to make your villains work. I mean, have we learned nothing from Spider-Man 3's Venom? And you've got to make your villains work. You've got to make people care about your villains. That's, I think, why Doc Ock in Spider-Man 2 rang so true. You know, the, 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 that character worked on every level. The arc of that character was fascinating. You cared almost as much about the villain as you did about Spider-Man at that point. So we, we don't get any of that here. So I think although the lizard was an interesting choice for sort of a, a franchise restarter, and I think it could have worked fine, I think the way he was executed was a big, big misstep. And let's be honest. That design is heinous. <laughs> like, like I don't know what's going on with that face. And the I know face, maybe the face is awful. I don't know if if it's like we can't do snouts and CGI or something. That, that's my biggest. That's my biggest nitpick of it. Yeah, I mean, it just he just looks so weird and just like generic green monster, not really just like like an actual like lizard. Like, put a snout on that man and get it over with. This is just awful. So yeah, for me first fix let's go ahead and bring more in uh, of the lizard's family fix that design a little bit and make us care about this guy make a clear distinction between the scientist a good man and, and the lizard you know this part of him that sort of you know takes control of him and then you know it becomes about saving a good man and not you know foiling villain of the week's plan to turn everybody into lizards First and foremost, the eyes, the snout was my biggest one. The second one, his eyes were weird. There's like this weird pink around his eyes. It's yeah, yeah. Disturbing. Uh, and not in a terrifying villain way. It's just like really weird. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think they removed all of the core elements um, with the exception of the scientist background as as to why the lizard is, is such a compelling villain in, in the rogues gallery of Spider-Man. You, you completely... It, if I remember correctly, they completely removed his family altogether. There is no wife, no Billy Connors. I think, you know, th those are the first two episodes, the Night of the Lizard part one and two of the animated series. And so like you're right from the jump, you're, you're immediately, you know, starting off with a compelling villain so much so that they can, you know, lead a two parter, uh, lead with a two parter. Um, so yeah, I do, I do appreciate the performance of Risa Fons in this role um, and, and, you know, I'll say this from the onset, the acting performances and the portrayals are absolute tour de force and some of the best I've ever seen on screen with Spider-Man. Um, <clears throat> so, um, I, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, similar, similar to Man of Steel, and I think even perhaps even more so, uh, shockingly at this rewatch, um, there's some incredible acting performances, but like some of the writing choices, the plot choices are just dumbfounding. Um, so removing all of that nuance from Kurt Connors, uh, aside from, Hey, we're science bros. Those I, I did enjoy those moments. Um, it, it really just completely limits this character. Um, and, and I think it's a huge misstep and, um, it, 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 to the point where like he has that one human moment where he's like the captain after he's transformed back and it's completely out of nowhere. If you would have had this consistent, you know, duality Jekyll and Hyde type thing that, that you originally have with the lizard, I think that would have not been so out of the blue. Can I just, can I just for, for a moment digress and talk about the moment that involves the lizard that I found the most dumbfounding in this movie. So, yeah. So, so Peter Parker goes 
to Kurt Connors to ask him to kind of track down the lizard, right? This is before he figured out that Kurt oh, Connors God, that is was the such lizard. A, such a terrible scene. And the, 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 so Kurt Connors just brushes him off, all fine and dandy. But then he opens the door and says, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. And then proceeds to leave the room himself so Peter Parker <laughs> can snoop around in his lab. And I'm like... You just asked him to leave. Why did you leave? What 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 what's, what just happened? Why is Peter still there and you're gone? Like, did and, I miss something? And to borrow one of my my go to phrases, it's about as subtle as a gun. When Peter says, "You know what predators um, does the lizard have?" or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's just that that whole scene was absolutely dumbfounding to me. All right, Chris, what is your first big fix for the Amazing Spider Man? Oh, God. Throw the parent storyline in the incinerator. Just remove it. And I know this is going to touch even further when we get to the second one. Shudders. Um, uh, The whole Richard and Mary Parker storyline is the biggest and most gross misstep in this entire franchise. And, And it really is frustrating to me, too, because you have Peter's parents in in Ben and May. And just because they're his aunt and uncle, I think it just undermines and it's just this whole like stereotypical idea of what a family has to be. It has to be a biological father and a biological mother. An aunt and uncle cannot be a real mom and dad. They can serve as a figure. But like so you're you're insisting on infusing this storyline of his mother and father who even in the comics have precious little to do with his actual development. They don't raise him. And so it's just undermining these two perfect portrayals, perfect portrayals by the GOAT, Sally Field and Martin Sheen. I, I, I'm i telling you, Dave, I, I knew exactly what was going to happen I, since I was a four or five-year-old child and I started with the animated series and became a Spider-Man fan. I knew exactly what was going to happen to Uncle Ben. And I actually cried this time watching it because it was that powerful of a performance. And Martin Sheen just brings it. And I didn't think that, you know, I'd seen this all before in the Raimi films. I've, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I know what's going to happen. It's not going to get me this time. That's how powerful the performances are. And as limited as Sally Field is in this film, she absolutely brings it. And so and, and to undermine that with this <clears throat> stupid espionage, oh, my father's partner in all of this, and this will get into my, my second point, but like how freaking small is this world that everything, every single bleeping thing is interconnected? So Richard and Mary should be nothing more than a footnote as much as they are in, in the comics you know, story. <clears throat> and even in the comics, you know, the the, the storylines where they try to shoehorn Richard and Mary in and make them relevant again are some of the worst Spider-Man storylines when they become life model decoys from the chameleon and like they come back into his life and he his spider sense is going off and he just can't figure out what's going on or you know I think it's amazing Spider-Man annual six and they're like actually super secret agents and the red skull is involved why would you insist on including some of the weakest you know, source material. So yeah, throw that Richard and Mary storyline into the incinerator and never to be spoken of again. You know, I, I think actually, and this is maybe the the part of me that still fancies himself a writer after all these years. Um, I, I don't think it necessarily has to completely go in the incinerator if they would have, you know, re 
focused it a little bit, but I think the biggest problem is um, that it doesn't have any payoff within this movie. That they thought they're making some kind of subplot that is going to stretch across three different movies. And what you end up with in this particular movie is is something that feels very disjointed because the first half of the movie is about, you know, the, the, the suitcase from his parents and him trying to get to know his parents better and figure out what they were up to. And then you hit sort of the halfway mark when the lizard stuff kicks in and, and the whole parent thing is completely abandoned for the rest of the movie. It's never mentioned again. It just vanishes until the sequel. So if we would have had um, at the very least some kind of payoff within this movie, some kind of big revelation, some kind of, you know, something to tie this whole thing together and make it feel like one coherent story, I think a lot could have been forgiven at that point. Uh, to me, it just it never clicked together with the rest of the movie. It, it sticks out like the proverbial sore thumb because almost no effort is made to integrate it into the larger story arc. At, at least that was my take on it. Yeah, and I could see that. And then it also wouldn't be so overwhelming and silly in the second one where they have this like... <clears throat> in the middle of an airplane heist and all of this nonsense. Yeah, that that it got very, very bad in the second one. Um, way over the top. All right, Dave, what is your second big fix of this film? Uh, so, so the big problem to me, um, and it kind of, it kind of echoes a little bit what you were talking about with with um, the whole parent storyline, is that this movie is a overstuffed. And B feel has a almost pathological need to be different from the Raimi movies just for difference sake. Um, the the scene that always sticks out to me uh, in a lot of ways is you know the 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 very famous power responsibility talk that he has with his uncle Ben. I have never seen uh, a writer tie him or herself into knots. The way they did in that scene. I don't know, remember Civil. Remember Civil War, where he's like, "When you'd have the power to do the things, and you don't do those things." <laughs> that that that's that's pretty close. But I, I honestly, I honestly think this one was worse because it's this argument, and people, you know, they they usually speak from the heart, and instead you get this incredibly convoluted thing that is literally just trying to avoid saying, "With power comes responsibility." Like it, it's 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 such. Um, it's such a staple. It has become such a staple of, of the Spider-Man mythos. To have somebody say it doesn't mean you're having a, a derivative, um, you know, Spider-Man story. Spider-Man still says it all the time in the comics today. That doesn't mean every new story is derivative of the old ones. But tying themselves into knots like that, I think that did a real disservice to that really good uh, Martin Sheen performance. Um so yeah, the parent thing makes it feel very overstuffed. You have this subplot that goes nowhere. You have this, you know, the parents are really just included. Why? Because they wanted to try something different. I remember in the marketing, they were very clear that this was the untold story of Spider-Man. You know, like we're going to go somewhere where the last movies didn't go to try to make it worth your time, even though we're rebooting the franchise after only 10 years, you know? And it's just, it's trying so hard to be different. And at the same time, it is throwing anything against the wall that it can think of to make it different, to see what will stick. That it comes across as this overstuffed sausage. Uh, Sally Field was what, on um, the Howard Stern's podcast or something recently? And the quote that, that 
kind of made the rounds about her performance as Aunt May was she was kind of unhappy with it. She said she didn't put a lot of thought into it. And she said, you can't stuff 10 pounds of crap. She used a very different word in a five pound bag. And I don't think that's necessarily just about her character. I think that really is the perfect description for this movie. It tries too much. It it throws anything against the wall it can think of, and it comes across as extremely overstuffed and different, not because it works, but different just for different sake, if that makes sense. And I think I think the MCU Spider-Man films are a little guilty of this as well. They're very they're very much trying to do stuff just to come across as different. Okay, so we're gonna skip the origin. I don't think that's necessarily a bad idea with an origin story as well known as Spider-Man. But then, okay, we're not we're not gonna have Uncle Ben. We're gonna kind of have Iron Man in that in that mentor uh, role that imparts those like like a lot of the choices that seem to be made in the MCU Spider-Man movies are very much we're gonna do this as different as the 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 last famous popular spider-man movie incarnation as possible there are differences not necessarily because they're the best choice for the character but differences just to be different and so my fix for this is very simple number one don't just throw everything against the wall and see what sticks pick a lane you know let's like with the with the parent storyline pay it off or don't pay it off but don't just have it in there for five seconds and then abandon it and and two don't be too shy to include some of the most classic elements of Spider-Man. I mean, like on the surface, I don't have a problem with the suit in this movie, but I think we all know the suit looks the way it looks because they were trying to not have the classic Spider-Man look because the classic Spider-Man look was from the last movie series. And and I don't think I don't think shying away from the things that make a character popular just to be different. Uh, is is a good idea. It's it's Man of Steel syndrome. How how different can we go, and how different can you go before a character goes too far away from what fans like about the character? You know, and I don't think they went that far in this movie, but it is very much a representation of I'm trying to be different just to be different. Kind of sounds like a moody teenager. That's exactly out right. Of, <laughs> acting out of out of character just to to get a reaction. Um, yeah, and I think my biggest. The, the reason it bothers me the most is because it completely undermines what I think are the definitive acting takes on some of the characters in this universe. <clears throat> and this, you know, it, so, it, so it was frustrating watching this, to be honest, because I already felt this way going forward. And, you know, I've made my, my feelings clear on social media um, but I, I, this just further reinforced, and this has been several years since I watched this movie, Andrew Garfield is far and away the best on-screen Peter Parker that we've had by far for me. I, I think it perfectly captures what it was at, at its time at 2012, what that would be to be, yes, he's a skateboarder. Yes. He's a hipster boy, but that's, that perfectly encapsul- encapsulates at 2012 what that would have been to be kind of like this outcast, like weirdo. He's not going to be a sweater vest wearing dweeb with Coke bottle glasses. That's not what an outcast is in 2012. It's not what it is, of course, now. So also his in-suit like quips and sarcasm and snarkiness, like pitch perfect. Um I already said that, that this is my perfect Uncle Ben and Aunt May. Perfection. 
but it's completely overwhelmed. Uh, Emma Stone is fantastic as Gwen Stacy, even though she's pretty much MJ with, you know, bleach blonde hair, but that's another story. Um, it, it's just completely undermined by these silly choices. Like I said, it's like a, a, a teenager just, you know, showing out, acting out just for attention's sake. So like some of these choices plot wise and, and storyline wise, um, you know, really undermine some of the best takes. So, so it, it, it's, it's frustrating that my favorite take on the character is, you know, in a film that is so bogged down by these questionable choices. Can we uh, also maybe mention that uh, hot Aunt May is never not going to be uncomfortable? Uh, I, 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 I go the other way on that one. I think it's an interesting alt universe thing where um, I don't, I don't need Aunt May to be an uh, this elderly states person. So I think it's an interesting alt universe take for me. I, I don't think need her to be like ancient and always on death's door either, which is why I really liked Sally Fields' take on the character. Right. But what's going on with the MCU right now makes me feel a little bit too much like the Trouble comic book series. It's just there's <laughs> there's there's something there's something icky about this whole situation. I just I, I I don't need this. I just don't. I don't I don't need any more trouble in my life, both literal and figuratively. <laughs> All right, Chris. So what is your uh, second fix of the Amazing Spider-Man? All right. So I hinted at it first uh, before my first point. Uh, this universe, this world is way too small. And Oscorp being the center at, of everything, like it seems like uh, an eight-year-old came up with the script. I mean, okay, so uh, Gwen Stacy is Spider-Man's girlfriend. She is also the lizard's understudy intern. Uh, and her father is killed by her boss. And Oscorp is is at the center of all of this. It's connected, of course, with Norman Osborn, connected with the Lizard, connected with Peter. His dad's involved, and good God! So, like, the world is so small, um, and and Oscorp is this epicenter that it, it really just lacks any kind of creativity, uh, in my opinion. And, and it's just frustrating that uh, once again, all, like I said before, all of these you know, wonderful performances, acting performances are undermined by some silly, silly choices. Yeah, why, why, you know, the implication here is that, that Norman Osborn is dying, but why exactly should we care when we've never met the character? Exactly. You know? It's just, it, it's, a, it's a big misstep in a lot of ways. It kind of goes into my next point, so I don't want to say too much here, but, you know, it is a very, very old um spider-man trope that all roads lead to norman osborn i mean to the to the point where when they could not fix the clone saga mess that they had written themselves into back in the day that their solution was norman osborn isn't dead and he masterminded everything that seems to be like the great patch of spider-man stories if you can't think of a solution it must be an osborn um it would be nice to be able to back off from that a little bit once and actually have like a, a, a first movie in a series that doesn't hew too close to Osborn. I think that's one of the great correct steps that uh, the MCU Spider-Man has taken, that it, we're not overwhelmed by the Norman Osborn of it all for a change. All right, so let's go into that third point of yours, Dave. What you got? So this... <sighs> You know, I've mentioned before on this pod that I fancy myself a bit of a writer. I've written a couple of comics myself, even though they were only, you know, little blips in the world and you can't even really find them anymore. But, you know, I've, I've written a little bit. I've written some short stories, you know, and uh, 
and and I fancy myself at least having a bit of a grasp about like you know some basic writing principles. So as far as storytelling goes, there is something about this movie that particularly baffles me. And the longer I sort of rewatched it, the more it stood out to me. All the characters that are most important to this plot, the movers and shakers, the people who really get things going, are off screen. You have, you know, um, Peter's parents. They're incredibly important to what's going on in the story, but they're on screen for maybe two seconds. And for the bulk of it, they're completely off screen again. And then you have Norman Osborn who is this guy who's like funding, you know, the lizard's research and he's dying. And his condition is basically the reason that all this stuff is happening. But guess what? He too is off screen. And so a huge chunk of this movie revolves around the the actions, the wants, the needs of people that we never really see or get to know. And that is just a bad, bad storytelling move. You're supposed to focus primarily on the people who are in front of you, your protagonist, your antagonist. You know, nobody here seems to have any, any real lasting agency. I mean, the lizard, why does he do what he does? Because, well, he was funded by Norman Osborn and he needs results in his research. Gosh, darn it. And what, what, why is Peter doing what he's doing? Well, he's just looking for his, for his parents and, and everything that his parents did is, is really informing his actions, at least for the first half of the movie. And then he kind of becomes just reactionary with what's going on with the lizard. So I think it's a very, very weird choice to have some of the most important people who are initiating all these things happening in Peter's life and never actually interacting with them in any meaningful way. Um, if you're going to have a Norman Osborn story where he's dying and he's funding this research and everything, he needs to be involved in the actual story. He needs to be front and center. We need to meet him. We need to interact with him. He needs to stand revealed as the villain in front of Spider-Man. You know, uh, there needs to be something there. And the same thing with, with the parents. If everything that his parents did informs what why Peter's doing what he's doing in this movie, then we have to have them present. At the very least, at the ending, he has to, you know, get something of like maybe that deleted scene that they had in Amazing Spider-Man 2, where it turns out his dad is alive and actually has a conversation with him in the graveyard. Like we need something where they're present, they're front and center, and it makes sense. There's a connection between the people off screen, the movers and shakers, and our main characters that are that are you know in front of us. It's it's a very very odd choice to hide these people away when they're so crucial to what's happening in front of us. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, and not to get the cart before the horse, but uh, you know they didn't learn this lesson uh, here. They doubled down on it for the second one. So in, instead of like diluting this into a solid good story, I mean, this goes back to what our third episode ever, where we talk about you know just make it a good story. Who cares if you change some details from the source material? Just tell a good story. And you know it also goes back to your previous point of you're tying yourself in knots, trying to make it different, and yet the same and still have some core elements, but you're choosing weird core elements to go back to in a strange fashion. So it just, the end result is just a huge convoluted mess. Yeah, that that's exactly right. All right, Chris, that brings us to your final point. Bring it on. All right. So uh, Captain Stacy is a very poor stand-in for J. Jonah Jameson. And I, I totally understand, uh, you know, it's, it's not so much, 
we want to be so different from the Raimi films. It's no one can replace uh, J.K. Simmons as J.J.J. Like, you're not going to do it to the point where Sony and Marvel and Disney went, you know, way out of their way just to get him back for that little tiny scene at the end of, you know, Far From Home because no one can do that scene again. But, I, you know, it's just that that the branzino dinner scene is just uh, it's a bit much so like and and it's just like a shoehorned in you know another shoehorned in, uh plot situation to where you know the the payoff at the end <clears throat> between captain stacy and peter you know would have meant a lot more if it wasn't you know they're in three scenes together so um and then he does this whole you know, Spider-Man is a menace thing with using different words and he's a vigilante and he's, you know, enemy of the state. It's just really weird and, and just a, a a really weird hodgepodge of different characters. And that, like I said, the end result is just nonsense. Yeah, he doesn't really feel like Captain Stacy from the comics, no. does he? There's, there's definitely shades of, of J. Jonah Jameson in there, but also some other stuff. It's really hard to pin that character down for me or his or his arc, really. Um, and not, not that the performance wasn't good. I mean, again, I think the casting and the performances in this movie have been you know, fantastic. Every time I revisit it, I think that. Um, but yeah, just a very, very odd choice. And again, man, it's it's so sad that the, the, the Raimi movies at this point, which are if we're completely honest, didn't particularly age well. But they're still, to this day, after three different Spider-Man movie series now, the only Spider-Man movie series that has completely united all the classic things that you expect from a Spider-Man story. You know, every, you know, the the Amazing Spider-Man series kind of tried to, you know, completely eradicate the notion of the Bugle and, and J. Jonah Jameson. And then, you know, the MCU is is kind of swapping stuff around, you know, again, just to be different. And I would like to see just a good classic, you know, close to the comic books take on Spider-Man on the big screen with more modern sensibilities, um, rather than always feeling the need to try to erase something or, or change something for the sake of being different. Because I think you and I both know that 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 sappy Tobey Maguire, Peter Parker is, is really not Peter Parker. Oh, and I, but all the elements around him are about as close to classic Spider-Man as you can get. And if we could get those elements around somebody like an Andrew Garfield, th- th- this stuff would sing in my book. Yeah, I, if if I could, <clears throat> and I'm a huge Kirsten Dunst fan, I just don't get MJ from her. Um, but Tobey Maguire, I mean, I I can't. I've 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 been I've been not shy about that. Um, it's just. And and some people say, well, this is the definitive take on the character because it's exactly what Lee and Ramita were doing. Yes. So if you want something that is absolutely stuck in the 1960s and 70s, then go watch the Raimi films. But like they are literally stuck in a time capsule of that time. And I don't even want to talk about James Franco like that. That's just awful, awful, awful. But yeah, I, I think if we're solely going from a cohesive um plot device i would take the raimi films uh the the first two third one utter shite um but um you know the first two films are the most cohesive storylines you know and with with a person of the resume of sam raimi that's not that's not surprising you know so um 
but but the storylines here I, I i'm you know i'm an mcu spider-man defender um but if i'm being completely honest i think plot wise the the raimi films the first two have it down pat it's just frustrating like i said to see all these tour de force performances that i absolutely adore just bogged down by utter nonsense it's it's incredibly frustrating yes i I will wholeheartedly echo that all right dave any final thoughts on the amazing spider-man it feels in a lot of ways exactly like the man of steel to me in that we have a very able directing um we have fantastic uh casting we have generally speaking very good performances and just absolutely baffling writing choices yeah it's it's you know in the great uh, Hollywood machinery. I think we can once again see and agree that writers still play an incredibly important role. That the notion of putting together a movie by committee is about as wrong headed as it gets. And what you need is a director and a writer on the same page, crafting a story that they fully and wholeheartedly believe in without too much interference. Sometimes you get an artistic vision that is resoundingly awesome. Sometimes you get one that doesn't ring true. But at the very least, it's not going to be this hodgepodge mess that we keep getting from stuff like The Amazing Spider-Man. One one final quick point. Um, The basketball scene needs to be punted into the East River. Um, Secondly... um, The, the the scene that really brought it home for me and what really made me want to fix this movie, and I think a perfect candidate for, for what we view as a, what's a movie we want to fix, is if there's something you can reach into this movie and there's a good movie there, it just needs to be tweaked. We saw that with Man of Steel. Um, the prequels, that was our, our, we had some heavy lifting there. I don't know if the, those exactly feel that. Um, the sequels, you know, we had to do some tweaking there. With this movie, the the one scene that really brought it home for me was the scene where he saves the little boy on the bridge. He completely, like the lizard, okay, he's gone, but I have to save this little boy's life. And that street level, do the right thing, you know, put the mask on. I'm, I'm, I'm overly frustrated. This is an overarching thing with all Spider-Man films. Please stop taking the freaking mask off. Please stop it. It is so frustrating to me, but that's the one time I will forgive it because when he says, put the mask on, it'll make you strong or or something to that effect. It, it was just so powerful and impactful. And when he saves that little boy and I, it, it ties in, you know, a little bit cheesy, but still emotionally impactful with the dad, you know, and the whole crane setup thing is, is a little bit dorky, but you know, the whole New Yorkness of Spider-Man. So, uh, that's what I really love about um, th- those scenes is it, it just really ties back into the street level hero. He's just an everyday type of kid trying to do the right thing. So that's, that's why I wanted to fix this one. Isn't that though, and not, and not to go off on a tangent, but I have to ask Chris, isn't that though one of the problems that ultimately we have with the MCU is that those Spider-Man films are getting further and further away from that street-level Spidey that we love so much. I mean, even in the Marvel comics, Spidey pops up in all sorts of interesting stuff these days, War of the Realms and all that. But those are crossovers for the most part. Within his own book, the stuff that always sings is when he's just the everyman down on the ground, you know, in the trenches trying to help regular everyday people. 
And those sorts of things, I feel like, are getting getting a little lost in the shuffle right now. I mean, we talk about, you know, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, but, you know, he's not been in the neighborhood much as far as, you know, the big screen stuff goes. And and I think that's that's sad. I miss I miss these kinds of moments. Even as cheesy as it was, that that train scene in, in the in Spider-Man 2, you know, when the people pull him into the train after he oh, passes God, out no. trying to stop. No, it. please, not that scene. It's it's no. che- it's cheesy as all get out. I mean, it's it's undeniably pure cheese, but at the same time, really this is where Spider-Man belongs. It's down on, on in on the street level with people trying to help them. That's where he works best. It's the same thing with Batman. Batman works best as a street-level hero. Can you put him in stories with alien invaders in a Justice League situation? Why, sure. But in his own book, where does he sing? What's his sweet spot? Down on the ground. And I think that's really where Spider-Man belongs, too. That is not just cheesy at its core. That is grade-A government cheese, like in a whole block. You have to get the shredder out. You didn't think that scene, You didn't think that scene was Gouda? <laughs> no, I thought it was uh Brie. Absolute flavorless nonsense. Um, <laughs> um I will say, you know, and I I'm gonna come across as a defender all the time of the MCU, but I, I take it as a whole. I think that while it is frustrating for me, and I've said this before, I think the weakest storylines is when you take the street level, you know, every man hero and shoehorn him into these cosmic things. That's just not his vibe. So even comic-wise, those are my least favorite ones where he's, you know, doing something other than that. But I think it's also the nature of the beast where they reach this agreement with Sony to get him into these, you know, into this greater connected universe. So they're like, well, we've got to put him in Infinity War. We went out of our way. We've only got X amount of films to do. So I think they're, you know trying to tie it all in because they only have a small amount of time to do so. Now, uh, I'm I'm interested to see where they go from here after No Way Home. Like I I I got to be honest, I am most excited for No Way Home. And I think we said this with the trailer and everything, but No Way Home feels the most right to me, and I know that it invokes um one more day and all that jazz, but him dealing with Dr. Strange and goofing around with stuff like that, that feels like that feels right to me. Like that feels more like a natural Spider-Man story. And I know that, that the, the Tony stuff is heavy handed, but like I've said before, where in the bleep in the MCU is the Tony stuff, not heavy handed. He created every villain in the universe. Uh, he shows up in almost every movie, like if not him, then his watermark of his company. So um, I'm excited for No Way Home. And then, you know, furthermore, like if Sony does retain all, you know, the exclusive film rights that if we can keep Tom Holland in the role, who I adore, um, you know, and similarly to how I feel with Garfield bogged down by some of the, you know, the overarching things. I'm excited to see where we go. Yeah, I can agree with that. All right. That wraps up our big talk for this week. When we come back, we're going to hit you with the dessert round, the ever tasty nerd commendations. All right, we are back for your favorite segment and mine. Dave, you kind of you're, you're double dipping a little bit, man. 
Yeah, so I will freely admit this is a return visit. Uh, and, and the reason for this is very simple. I, I don't get to watch a whole lot of TV these days, Chris. So I kind of watched the pilot of, of Superman and Lois. And based on the pilot, I, I gave it a nerd commendation. And that's been a long time. And now the, the entire first season of the show is concluded and it's dropped on HBO Max. And I've not had a chance to watch any other episodes of the show. And so now I was able to kind of go back and start slowly watching some more episodes. About halfway through the first season now. And you know what? I'm I, I'm going to just want to refresh my nerd commendation. I don't want to just nerd commend a pilot. I want to actually, you know, give my take on, on the show itself. And you know what? It's good. Um, I've also been uh, repeatedly smacked in the face on social media. Um, which happens to me a lot lately. I'm going to be completely honest with you. Um, with my critique of Man of Steel and the Zack Snyder take on Superman, with people saying, well, this this uh, Superman and Lois show that I have previously nerd commended um, kind of uh, falls in line with Snyder's vision. And to that, I will say visually, perhaps, um, but substantially hard disagree. So Superman and Lois, of course, is the CW TV show um, that features uh, Tyler Hoechlin in the title role of Clark Kent Superman. And uh, we have, of course, uh, uh, Elizabeth uh, Tulloch as uh, Lois Lane. And in this version of the story, uh, you know, the two characters have been around for a while. They uh, are married. They have two teenage kids. And then a tragedy uh, brings them back to Smallville. They decide to move to the Kent farm and uh, try to sort of <clears throat> fix their, their their family dynamic a little bit. There's also the question of whether one or both of the boys are going to end up with powers and, you know, uh, some uh, shady business, business dealings by uh, Superman comic book mainstay Morgan Edge. <clears throat> so what, what makes this show sing to me now that I've watched it a, a little bit more is A, I can't believe how much I like the teenage characters, which is like the one group of people I cannot stand consistently in CW shows. I don't know what it is on the CW and how they, you know, deal with teenagers, but oh my God, they are the most obnoxious creatures on earth. Now, as a teacher, I can say some teenagers certainly are obnoxious, but I don't think I'm ready to indict an entire age group the way the CW seems to. <laughs> And and the two brothers here, uh, Superman and Lois's kids, um, Jonathan and Jordan, they feel very, very real. Um, they're not perfect. Uh, they have problems, but at the same time, they're not these, you know, bundles of idiocy uh, that so many other teenagers tend to be on television. They kind of get the benefit of the doubt of the doubt a little bit, which I really appreciate. Now, as far as like the Zack Snyder connection, I will say yes, the color palette and the way it is filmed uh, hues a little bit to the Snyder style. Um, you know, we got some washed out colors here, which is not my favorite look, but I think the show really makes it work. Uh, among all the CW shows that involve superheroes, I think this is probably the best looking one. It has a very cinematic look to it. It looks like something that could be on the big screen. And that is something that I really appreciate. But I think the very best thing about it is that they get the one big rule of Superman writing, and that is punching stuff 
is not this character's number one purpose. He's an extremely powerful character. So just giving him bigger and bigger things to punch is not the way to go in storytelling. What you need to do with a Superman story is you need to challenge his his um, his morals, his, his decision-making. You need to confront him with problems that cannot be solved by punching them. And lo and behold... Having him as a father of two teenage boys brings him in exactly that sweet spot. He is constantly in the series facing things that he can't punch away. And he has to try to navigate, you know, life in a way that any other person has to as well. The best Superman stories always keep this in mind. That Superman needs to be challenged not just based on his powers, but on his morals, on his ethics, and on his personality. And here we are with a show that does this in every single episode. And I, and I kind of adore it for that. Uh, I also kind of adore the fact that we have a show that sees a married Superman and Lois returning to Smallville. And they do not create a love triangle between Lois, Superman, and, you know, his teenage love, Lana Lang. Like, holy crap, what a concept that adults can be in the same room together without trying to rip each other's clothes off. That a CW show eschews the notion of a love triangle blows my mind in about 40 different ways. Isn't there a love triangle, at least one, in every single CW show at this point? Yeah, so so much of this goes against the grain of what you would expect from this particular show. I also absolutely adore the portrayal of Lois Lane in this show. The woman is supposed to be a force of nature. I've said this time and time again. And in this show, she absolutely is. Yeah, even within the first couple of episodes, you know, she she makes some very bold choices. No matter where she goes, she's front and center. She's digging for the truth. It just feels like Lois Lane. Even though in this version, she's a mother, she's still Lois in everything she does. Uh, so the writers of this show really seem to get the characters and, and have put them in really uh, a, a fascinating situation that has not really been seen very often in the comics. I mean, we had this absolutely fantastic Superman run where Lois and, and, and Clark are parents uh, and have, you know, Superboy Jonathan Kent running around with them. And that, that was a fantastic comics run. But even this is something a little different from that. Um, it rings true. It rings honest, and I absolutely adore it, Chris. Yeah, I, I, um, I think I watched the first two or three episodes, and I remember enjoying it. I, I, I will say, um, you know, full stop that the the situation uh, of which you know Nadria Tucker was fired, um, you know, left me a little bit cold and a little bit apprehensive of of supporting a show, the show. But um, you know, my my other big apprehension was the CW of it all. So, uh, you know, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the first couple of episodes that I did view. Um, but, but there are none of the other CW shows I can, I can really get into because it has that CW nature, just that, I don't know what it is. Can't quite pinpoint it. It's, it's the drama, the unnecessary drama, the, 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 the queen of it all. If you will, uh, it's just highly frustrating. And this one is probably the one that I can stomach the most. Um, uh, so I, I'm definitely going to have to to give it another shot and finish up these last couple of episodes because I think I got. I, I also remember being very very intrigued by the um, the antagonist of the show. I don't I don't 
if, if memory serves, he's not exactly a villain per se, but the antagonist seemed very, very intriguing. Yeah, and, and that develops in a very, very fascinating way. Uh, very, very cool there too. Uh, and I will say, <clears throat> watching this on HBO Max feels a lot more natural. It doesn't really feel like a CW show. It really feels like a show that would be at home on HBO Max. So don't don't let the CW of it all um, push you away because this is probably the least CW CW show I've ever seen. I think that sounds weird, but um, <laughs> it, it's it's definitely the truth. If I see Barry trying to change the timeline one more time, I'm going to throw something. Stop it, Barry. Stop it. All right, Chris. What is your nerd commendation for this week? Okay, well, this is an exclusively DC nerd commendation segment. Who would have thought that? But um, I'm a huge, huge, huge super fan of Vita Ayala. I think they are one of the um, creators that I identify with their writing style the most. Just the family dynamic and the the real heart of the characters. Um, I love what they're doing on New Mutants. I love what they did with Children of the Atom, creating new, interesting, intriguing characters um, of diverse backgrounds that are different than me and are absolutely fascinating. Um, and they are currently writing um, a book for DC as well uh, called Static Season One with art by um, uh, Criss Cross. So I knew nothing about this character. Uh, I know that there was a popular animated series um, from from a couple years back, but uh, you know, being a mostly Marvel consumer, this this character was completely new to me. So just a, a backstory for those of you who, like me, knew nothing about this character. So uh, I'm reading this from the Google Books summary. Bullied nerd Virgil Hawkins wasn't the kind of kid you'd normally find on the streets at a protest. But like everyone else in the city of Dakota, he was fed up. Unfortunately, the first time he stood up to raise his voice, the world turned upside down. The experimental tear gas released that day left some of his classmates maimed or dead. But it left Virgil and others with stunning new abilities. Virgil has power inside him now, real power, the ability to channel and manipula manipulate electromagnetic fields. Um, and, and so this is just really a fascinating thing. You know, Dave, you and I are always here for a teenage superhero. Um, but uh, this one is, it really is interesting and a real change up. And, you know, I've read the first three issues um, and not a not a whole lot has happened action wise. It's, it's still kind of laying the groundwork, but what really makes me love this book is the family notes and the complicated dynamics of being a teenage superhero. You know, a lot of the times you have teenage superheroes and it's like, Oh man, I'm a kid. I'm enthusiastic. I got superpowers. Look how awesome this is. But with Virgil, it's like, it, it's more realistic. It's like, Oh God, I have, you know, this massive headache, like, this is kind of terrifying. This is my new normal. What do I tell my family? And so there's more nuance to, you know, having a 16 year old kid. I, I believe he's 16. Um, like have all these superpowers and their world is turned upside down and, and having this real grounded real world experience, you know, with being protested and having a voice and, and, and speaking out and, and it's so much more nuanced and, and realistic as, as it can be in a superhero book. Um, and it's, you know, great street level stuff. I mean, like his bully also received superpowers. So they square off in front of his house and it's just, it's just really, um, it really speaks to me and, and the family notes um, between the, 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 
the talks between him and his father, they really hit those, those family notes of, you know, a dad just trying his best and misunderstanding his son um, that I got from children of the Adam when, when Vita was writing that book. And, you know, also what I love what they're doing with uh, the new mutants. So um, you can find uh, static season one at local comic shops. I read it on the DC universe uh, infinite app. I was finally able to navigate it a little bit, still not the easiest app to use, but um, yeah, static season one, highly, highly, highly recommend it. Probably my favorite DC book that I have read um, of modern DC books. I have to ask you, Chris, how, how familiar are you with Dwayne McDuffie and the, his whole, uh, the whole story of Milestone? Uh, not at all. That, that, those are all new words you just threw at me. Okay, so um, I'm, I'm going to give you like the Cliff Notes version of my understanding, and I have read some Milestone stuff. So basically, uh, McDuffie, who um, I believe has since passed away, which is just an absolute shame, uh, was an uh, African-American writer who worked at Marvel for a little while, became very um, disillusioned there uh, with how it's um, uh, people of color, the characters that were of color were treated uh, in the comics and then uh, basically struck out as a freelancer and eventually uh, in the early 90s sort of started his own company, Milestone Media, with uh, three partners. Um, and Milestone's sort of mission statement was uh, to, to try to create a comic book company uh, that has a, a strong focus on diversity. And we get characters like, you know, um, Static, uh, Shock from that. We also get, you know, Icon, Hardware, uh, Zombie, uh, The Blood Syndicate. There's all sorts of, uh, you know, properties that came out of that. And eventually DC uh, basically bought up uh, milestone media. So what you're seeing right now with this particular static series is sort of a return of uh, um, an imprint uh, that has a really long history. And there are a whole bunch of back comic books, very 90s though they may seem, that I think may be very much up your alley uh, as a, a champion of uh, you know diversity in comics. I cannot speak highly enough of some of the work that Dwayne McDuffie has done, particularly at Milestone, but even in some of the other things he's done. I think you would really enjoy his work, Chris. Oh, man, I'm doing a quick Google search and Keegan Michael Key is his brother. That is wild. But yeah, so uh, uh, all right. So there's just add more stuff to my reading list. My reading list, my, my digital library is through the roof right now, but I'm super excited to dive right in. Yeah, I think I think you will definitely not be disappointed. And I'm so glad to see that some of these characters are returning uh, back into the spotlight. I'm pretty sure that Icon, who is uh, a little bit of a Superman equivalent as far as power set wise, is also uh, getting a new series right now. Uh, I find that very exciting. These, these characters are absolute classics. All right, that wraps up another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. Be sure to hang with us next week as we sit down with returning guest Stephanie Williams and talk about Nubia and the Amazons, her upcoming book with none other than Vida Ayala uh, and Aletha E. Martinez on art. So uh, thank you so much for all your support. Uh, you can find us wherever podcasts are found, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, TuneIn Radio, or nerdbyword.com, and drop that five-star rating and review. Also, find us on social media and hang with us. We are on all the major uh, social media platforms. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram 
uh, at Nerd by Word. You can also find us individually at that Nerd Chris and at that Nerd Dave. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. Uh, maybe can throw some ideas our way of what you would like us to talk about. Um, we are always excited to interact with our listeners. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. 